This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me today is Dr. Judith Moscovich, who's a professor in the Education Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Judith, thanks so much for sitting down with me. It's good to be here. We're going to be talking about Judith's research career, so I want to go back to the very beginning and ask you about what was it that inspired you to start your career in mathematics education in the first place? That's a really good question. One of my secrets is that I actually started out studying physics. Okay. And I started out after uh, finishing my physics degree. I started out teaching math in a vocational school. This was uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, working with uh, Laotian immigrants. I had no preparation to teach math. I had no preparation to teach English learners, and I had to really muddle my way through that. I then ended up uh, moving to San Francisco and teaching college-level math at San Francisco State. I was trained there by a group of amazing people who, really, I got to watch them. They showed me how to teach uh, what we then called uh, math without fear. Mm. I spent about eight years teaching those uh, level of courses, college-level math, and I started to wonder and think about not only what I was doing in terms of teaching, but I wanted to know what was going on with the students in my class as they were learning math. So I was working in college with people who had had difficult experiences with math and and were having difficulties. I wanted to go back to high school mm-hmm. to see what was going on in high school so that we could catch those people before they became the yeah. adults who were... Try to avoid the college-level students who yes. were afraid of math. And yeah. Right. So what can we do before they get to the college level? And I thought the the best way I could do that was by doing research and coming to understand how people learn mathematics. So my initial interest wasn't in studying my own teaching or how people teach math. I wanted to know more about um, how people learn math. I also was uh, very much interested in bilingual students uh, because that was the student population I was most committed to. And also being uh, bilingual myself, it sort of made sense that this would be the student population I would work with. I, yeah, when I see you know your history in the state of California, I often think about bilingual student populations, but it's funny to hear that even when you were in Minnesota, your first teaching experience yes. there was even a bilingual setting. That's interesting. Yes. I Actually, you know, bilingual people, we are everywhere. <laughs> um, and it's a part of learning that's important in many different places. So now knowing that you wanted to go do some advanced study about students learning the mathematics, then where did you end up going to graduate school and who did you work with there? Um, I went to graduate school at Berkeley and I ended up working with Alan Schoenfeld in math education. But I'm going to back up a second because before I found that math education research was the right place for me, I went through some other possible areas. I actually thought I was going to study neurophysiology. Hmm. And I did a lot of reading and took some classes in uh, philosophy of science. 
And I actually didn't really know that there was a field called math education research. It took me a while to find the people who knew <laughs> that there was a program mm -hmm. uh, at Berkeley and that there were other programs I could apply to. So I always look back at that because I feel that in math education, we really there's something that we need to do to help people know that this is a possible career. Mm -hmm. Now, all of the work that I did, I'm, I'm still really interested in neuroscience. I'm still really interested in philosophy of science. All of that informs the work that I do in math education. So at Berkeley, back when I started out in, in math education, there were several things that I kind of had to relearn or rethink about what I did. Again, coming from math and physics, hadn't taken much psychology. Cognitive science was a completely new field for me. And I was both surprised that I needed to learn so much cognitive science. But at the same time, I was looking for the part of cognitive science that seemed most relevant and important to the work I wanted to do. And I think what, what I found was cognitive anthropology and anthropology of education in general as the field that most complemented what I was interested in doing. I remember um, having a conversation when I first started graduate school where I went to talk to Guadalupe Valdez. So Alan Schoenfeld was in the department that was then called Education in Math, Science, and Technology, and I was in that department. And I went to talk to, to Guadalupe Valdez. She was in the department that was then called Language and Literacy. And I had a conversation with her where I said, so, you know, I'm definitely in math education. That's what I want to do. And I want to work with bilingual student populations. You know, how can I do that? Should I be in both departments? How, how am I going to manage that? Mm -hmm. And she was really clear. She said, work on the math education part first. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I have to wait, and why can't I do everything? At the time, there were not people I could study with who were actually doing both. Mm. And so I think that was really good advice. I always thank Guadalupe for having that conversation with me, even if she might not remember it. It was so important to me. And I tell the story because I think it's important for new researchers, as they're putting together two different areas, mm -hmm. that... One's dissertation may or may not be the time when you get to do that, and that there's always the postdoc time. So what I did, in fact, was I worked with Alan Schoenfeld um, doing lots of work um, looking at math tutoring, looking at math learning. I also um, used Andy DeSessa's uh, theoretical framework for I want to say not looking at misconceptions. Mm -hmm. That's fundamental to the work that I do in math education. So science education has always informed um, what I do. I was influenced by people in educational psychology. I was especially influenced by people who were doing postdocs at Berkeley at the time. Jack Smith uh, of Ron Markavi was doing a postdoc there. And what ended up happening was that I did take a lot of classes in um, anthropology of education. I took a class with John Ogbu. I took my qualitative methods class with sociologists. So I had a really broad but also deep training. Uh, and I did a lot of research working with the functions group with, with Alan. Lots of hands-on work analyzing data, collecting data, writing curriculum to collect data. Again, really important. 
I also worked with Betsy Brenner, and she and Anne Brown were both on my dissertation committee. Mm-hmm. My dissertation ended up having one chapter that was about language. And in order to work on that last chapter, I had advice and, and I want to say I learned a lot from Kathy O'Connor, who's a linguist, who also happens to work in, in math classrooms. But again, I remember sitting down with her and looking at my data and thinking about how to analyze it. And then, in fact, the, the postdoc work that I did expanded so that I did have the basis of working in math education and then expanded into looking more at language and classroom discourse. So I want to jump ahead to the late 1990s when you were really able to bring together both lines of work, mathematics education and bilingual students in those settings. Because in the late 90s, you received some NSF grants and also Spencer grants that allowed you to really move your research agenda several notches forward. So I was wondering if you could talk about that time um, when you're studying mathematical discourse in bilingual settings. What are the main outcomes that you see from your research in that era with those projects? Before I talk about outcomes, I think I'd like to talk about how that work was accomplished. Mm -hmm. I'm actually thinking of, um, there's a wonderful long poem by Ray McDermott. He talks about development and how a lot of work goes into making development happen. And I am a Vygotskian, a neo-Vygotskian. So when I tell my own story, I feel like I always have to describe how that work was accomplished. So in the early 1990s, after finishing my PhD, I was at a, an amazing place, the Institute for Research on Learning. Jean Lave had been there. Etan Wenger was there. Um, I was working with Jim Greeno, um, Shelley Goldman, Ray McDermott, and a project called the Middle School Mathematics Through Applications Project. I also got to talk to people who were linguists, fundamentally sociolinguists. So Penny Eckert uh, and Charlotte Lindy were people who I would sit down in the in the lunchroom and they would really teach me to think about language. Fundamentally, without having those conversations, I could read Jim G, mm-hmm. but I didn't come to understand Jim G un- until I had conversations with people who were sociolinguists and, and used that work. And the same thing goes for bilingualism and for classroom discourse. In the late 1990s, I went to work at Turk with the Shesha Kanate Project with Beth Warren and Anne Roseberry. And once again, they were working in science education, which I think is a really productive collaboration, math education and science education. They've been working with language minority students and looking at classroom discourse. So again, not only was I reading the pieces, but having actual conversations and hanging out with people who are Mm -hmm. the experts on bilingualism, classroom discourse, um, and so on. One of the things that was also interesting for me is that being bilingual myself, I had my own experience, and of course I'm an expert on my own experience. However, I didn't have an understanding of bilingualism or second language acquisition from an academic perspective. So the project that I was working on, mathematical discourse in bilingual settings, My main goals at the time were to document that bilingual students who were doing math could actually participate in classroom discussions. Mm -hmm. What I was seeing at the time was everything was um, framed in terms of 
these are the obstacles that bilingual students face. These are the challenges. And I wanted to turn that around, again, from a neo-Vygotskian perspective, and also from a, a constructivist perspective. What are they doing well? What can they do that teachers can build on? So I, I collected data in, in different classrooms and analyzed that data, looking, again, to document what are the ways that bilingual students or students who are learning English are able, have competence in mathematics. So for me, the different articles and the different examples help me to talk to people saying, let's not start with the obstacles, but instead let's work from what students have in terms of competencies. And I think that's a fundamentally Vygotskian way to look at math learning in general. What I was doing, it was applying it to a particular population and giving details of, the, of what the competencies are and what the resources are. Mm -hmm. And for practice, I think, I mean, one thing that I've taken from your work, and so I'm curious to see if I'm taking this correctly, is that in practice, in working with students that are ELLs or bilingual, that the goal is not to have them avoid communicating mathematically because it might be, you know, troublesome or it might be a struggle for a while, but that, in fact, getting them to communicate more is actually beneficial to have these students who are learning the language and learning the mathematics together. That doesn't mean to cut out the language and just focus on the mathematics. It actually means to give them lots of opportunities and varied opportunities to use the language and the mathematics together. Yeah, that's a... It's not just an interpretation. That you're absolutely expanding on what my work has been showing. I'm not sure where the idea comes from. And be, again, because I'm a constructivist and I don't think that people have misconceptions that don't make sense, mm -hmm. I've tried to understand. So there's this sort of intuitive idea, oh, if you're working with English learners, first of all, they won't be able to do blank. That's one of the places people start. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, if I'm going to be a good teacher, then I have to make blank easier for them. Mm -hmm. Again, those may be intuitions, but they happen to not fit the phenomena and they happen to not help students learn language. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, what we do know from how human beings acquire language, whether it's first or second, is that you have to participate in using language. Mm -hmm. You have to do things with language. And that's why doing math with language both help students to learn mathematics and learn language. So the way that I'm looking at how to have conversations, especially with practitioners, is to talk about if we have these intuitions about how we learn language, let's address them, let's talk about them, but then let's see whether they match how either we as individuals have learned language or how our student may be learning language. Sometimes when I talk to practitioners, I say, if you've ever been in a language classroom and you're given a list of vocabulary words, you know your experience has been that you walk out of there and you really don't remember any of those. Uh, and again, this comes as an example from people who know about second language acquisition. If you do something with that language, let's say you work with somebody and learn how to take photographs and you have to talk to them about, you will come out of there knowing not only vocabulary, but it'll make sense to you. It'll have meaning. It'll have been grounded in an activity where you were doing something that made sense. It's the same way 
with learning mathematics while you're learning English. The best way to learn both the mathematics and the English is to do some things that make sense to you. It'll be a more accessible activity if you start out with more everyday or colloquial language and then later on move to the more formal or technical language. That's also typical of the, the transition that we all make from um, everyday to more academic language. So those are the outcomes. What I, what I have tried to do is ground the way that I look at language acquisition in the research that comes from second language acquisition. Because after all, they're the experts in that area, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We're in math education. What we know is how people learn math and how we should teach it. What I've spent a lot of time doing is talking to people who work with English learners who know about second language acquisition, about what it means to really learn math. Mm -hmm. So things that are second nature to us, mm -hmm. that mathematical proficiency is a balance between conceptual understanding and procedural fluency, I have to, again, talk about those things to the people on the language side. Mm -hmm. And then what I end up doing is talking to people in math education about what people in classroom discourse or second language acquisition know or, or bilingualism know. Mm -hmm. The other important um, example I have is in terms of children who are bilingual. Um, many of the intuitions that actually both monolinguals and bilinguals have One of the intuitions is that mixing up two languages is not a good thing. That it either tells you that there's some deficiency there, either in how well you know either language or in how you're understanding the ideas. Again, people in bilingual education have a long history of showing that that's not the case. That bilingualism and mixing up two languages is actually a different skill. And that particularly young people, I want to say adolescents, always mix things up, and they are creative with language. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work has tried to show examples of how students may be mixing Spanish and English, and that that is not a sign of deficiency, but in fact that it's a sign of competence, particularly that it's a sign of competence in mathematical reasoning. I'm speaking with Judy Moscovich from the University of California, Santa Cruz. So Judy, um, can tell you're very passionate about this work and you have a lot of ideas that you've been digging into. I'm curious what you're working on right now. What's on your mind at this time in your research? That's a really good question because it's, it's good to think about the past, but there are a couple of things I've been working on. I just uh, published two pieces, one a journal article and another one is a book chapter on the topic of... I don't know if I'm coining a new phrase, which I don't like to do, <laughs> but um, what I'm calling academic literacy in mathematics. And the reason that I wanted a new phrase is because mathematical language doesn't, it, it can get interpreted as being reductionist. So the language of mathematics, that just was too reductionist for me. And I explain three different components of academic literacy in mathematics. So for the people who are working with language, I describe mathematical proficiency, again, which is based on everything that we know in math education. I also describe mathematical practices, not just the ones in the Common Core standards, but the ones that we've all been working on and describing for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I also describe mathematical discourse. Mm -hmm. So those three components for me are a way to make 
um, academic literacy and the sense of literacy, again, in mathematics, much more complex. Mm. I'm also working on uh, rethinking and talking about scaffolding. Because scaffolding can either mean nothing or everything. <laughs> uh, and I want to reclaim it as a really important Vygotskyan notion to look at teaching. Because the, the bigger piece that I'm working on is finding a coherent theoretical way to frame teaching that is consistent with the work I've done before. If you look at my work, I'm mostly focused on what students are doing. And there's a couple of times where I've looked at what, what is it that the teacher is doing that looks like it's working well. And I'm, I'm looking for a more coherent way to frame that looking at teaching. Mm-hmm. Recently, NCTM's research committee uh, released an effort to identify grand challenges in the field of mathematics education. So while I had you here, I, I thought I'd be wise to ask you what you see as a grand challenge for the field related to ELLs or bilingual students or mathematics discourse, kind of your area of work. I think the central uh, grand challenge that I'm looking at has to do with, if we start with the premise that, that learners and students will start with talking about mathematics in everyday ways, and that the role of instruction and the role of the teacher is to help them move to more formal, more mathematical ways of speaking. So how do we do that? Mm-hmm. What are the, and I'm going to use a, a, a different way to look at scaffolding, what are the micro-scaffolding, so in, mm-hmm. in individual conversations uh, with a teacher or with a peer? What are the middle scaffolding ways that we might do this within a lesson? For example, how do we scaffold helping Students, whether they're English learners or native English speakers, learning how to read word problems. That's at the level of uh, a lesson. And then uh, what are the macro-scaffolding ways across lessons? And I have to note that I borrow those three words from two people, Mary Schleppegrell, Mm -hmm. uh, who may even have asked me that question. Um, Guadalupe Valdez also asked me that question. How do we help students move from the everyday ways of talking to the more formal mathematical ways of talking? And then there's a piece by a linguist, uh, Leo Van Leer, where he actually mentions those those three levels of Mm. scaffolding. Great. Um, Judith, now I have one final question that I ask all my guests. Uh, So... I want you now to sort of take that whole career that has the work that you've done and the stuff that's still ongoing and just put that aside and think about what if you weren't in math education, what would you see yourself doing instead? Okay, first I have to say that um, I'm really happy this is where I ended up, but I, I had no idea that this would be the place where I could bring... All the varied and different interdisciplinary interests that I have, so I'm very happy about that. I'm really curious. I almost want to say I'm intellectually greedy. (laughs) And oftentimes my friends say, oh, so that's another career that you wish you would have done. So I'm I'm going to pick two instead of just one of those. That sounds all right. I think one of the things I wish I I could do and might still do is be an ethnomusicologist. Mm. Not just categorizing music, but... Um, I I'm, I'm know a lot about music from Latin America, mostly the Southern Cone and Brazil. And the diversity and variety and 
in different genres and how the rhythms and the music and the lyrics relate to colonialism and who was there and who wasn't and also the incredible sense of connection I, I, I want to say something that will sound like I'm from California which I am uh, which is that human beings really are we are all one uh, when it comes to music and, and dancing also mm. many of the themes repeat so mm. ethnomusicologist would be my top choice oh, yeah. and then my other one would be an anthropologist mm-hmm Seems like those two could even they go together go in together. some kind of dream. They do yeah. go together, and I, I mean, actually, some of a lot of what I do is informed by anthropology of education. Judy Moskovich from UC Santa Cruz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sam. It's been a great pleasure uh, talking with you, and it's been really great fun to think about my work with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.